Welcome back to the Startwell podcast. Once again, I am Kasim, and today I'm joined in studio by Jay Rosenthal. Jay uh, came to Startwell as a member, used to record in this very studio. It didn't sound or look as good. For the business of cannabis, and uh, that is the domain name on your t-shirt. Always be branding. I guess so. <laughs> I wore the wrong thing today. Well, I'll get you your shirt. No, I didn't mean that I didn't wear your oh, shirt. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not wearing my shirt. You know, I could wear your shirt if you want. I only have three shirts. They all say the same thing, and I just keep wearing them. Jay, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how you came into the world of cannabis, your personal experiences with, uh, you know, what you write about now, business, cannabis, the intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to kind of explore what your lens is on the industry because so much has happened since you came to start well as a member a couple of years ago and things opened up legally uh and i personally am totally in the dark about it i'm sure a lot of my audiences so i'd love to illuminate them and first off yes welcome back thank you these are a few of my favorite things to talk about myself and weed excellent <laughs> uh let me talk about how i got to start well first of all i'd love to hear that because um I was looking for a place to record really worse versions of what we're doing right now, yeah. uh, where I would have people come in, wanted to be around downtown. And at the time, there was this real trend of like all of the cannabis CEOs coming through downtown Toronto on their, like their money show, basically. Right. right. They like, were raising capital. Raising capital, going banks. public, talking yeah. to investors, Bay Street meetings, right? Like right. do 20 in one day, 20 in two days. I wanted to be in that stop so we could get them talking about Cannabis, and it was great, and this was a great location to do that. Um, and then they stopped coming because of COVID. That was part of it. Um, and then we were fully remote, but it was the time in business of cannabis, and we were like, if we could just do something nearly every day, right? we would just be filling a gap, and people are just hungry and thirsty for this information, both in the industry, outside the industry, looking in, and that's what we needed a space for, and this was like ideal, and we did events here too. Now, yeah. tell me a little bit about... The backdrop, like career backdrop or otherwise interest backdrop, how did you get involved in kind of like documenting what's going on in this, in, you know, totally nascent at the time? Yeah. I mean, even now, it's only been a couple of years, right? So yeah. it's yeah. still very young. But. Yeah, I, it's funny. I was just, We were just in Las Vegas last week um, for the big trade show in cannabis. And someone was saying, like, what was your background that brought you to do this? And it, I don't believe I was like called to do this by like some divine intervention. Sure. But- my background was perfectly suited for this at this moment. So let me describe. So one, I've always liked weed. Like I have an older brother, older sister. I think that's how most people find their way into weed. I was like four years younger. Yeah, my brother would, if my parents ever listen, they're going to be pissed. My brother would send it from Syracuse, New York to Boston, Massachusetts when he would come home. And then I would be the kid in high school with weed. Like that's a good guy to be. Um, Props uh, to all older brothers listening to this. Do it. My brother knows, he knows the story. He knows this jam. Yeah. And it, it and that's really common that and like summer camp and the whole thing. So like, I, I've always liked cannabis a lot, and my parents are not permissive in any way. But like, we knew they used cannabis in the sixties. Oh, right. Like I'm from Boston. Jewish kids from Boston. They were Jewish kids from Boston too. Like, this is just part of the thing. The right? culture. The, the awakening. Culture. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying like yeah, it's not like a religious thing, but it's like it's we had to do well in school. We had to work hard, and you weren't allowed to wear shoes. Right. <laughs> I grew up on a commune. Um, no, so 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 that was like the uh, that was the earliest introduction, I guess, to the actual to cannabis. Obviously, university used a lot of weed too. 
Where did you grad- go to university? I went to school in Atlanta. I went to Emory University. I'm, I'm American. So. You went to Emory? I did. I know. People That's are surprised that smart I'm smart. Smart people go there. I know. I know. It's shocking. Right? <laughs> uh, yes, I did. And I know that's the number one response. People like, you went to Emory. Wow. Um, well, then again, I went to McGill. Okay. So I'm not. Smart I'm not, too. Uh, maybe smarter. Than Emory? But then oh, again, man, I'm not right in the off. cannabis industry. So, you know. That's true. <laughs> so relative to people in the cannabis industry. No. So I went to Emory in Atlanta and then went to work on Capitol Hill straight out of university. So uh, I went to work, you know, for a U.S. senator. So I was really involved in politics, policy, the whole bit. And wow. then went to work in her California office as well, Senator Boxer. And I got to San Francisco. That's where I was working. And, you know, cannabis culture in California, is it's ingrained. It of really course, is. yeah. But, yeah but, since those same days, right? Since the 60s, oh, yeah. it's been just like baked, excuse me, into yeah. the culture. Yeah. yeah, certainly in San Francisco and even broader. You know, Oaksterdam and Oakland is sort of part of the lore of cannabis, but also, you know, Mendocino and, and uh, Humboldt County, New York, uh, Humboldt County, uh, Northern California. Like, this is where weed grows. Right. And I was working in, then I went to work in local government, then went to work for a sort of policy and sort of public affairs shop, and then went to start it on my own. But I was always working in heavily regulated industries, mm-hmm. energy, natural gas, um, healthcare, charter schools. That was sort of my book of work when I was doing work for myself. And that that translates really well to heavily regulated industries, no matter what the industry is, right? So could you talk about energy and utility or cannabis? It's heavily regulated. You need to build constituencies to move policy and politics forward. So like that was part of my background, what I was doing professionally. And uh, this is, I can't believe this actually turned out to be helpful. Okay. But one of my clients in, when I was a consultant, um, was a garbage company that was trying to retain a $700 million contract, like a 10-year Seven hundred million dollars. You like, mean they, they were actually in like refuse as an industry, yes. or they were a piece of garbage that the company that you were refuse in? as an industry. Okay, so they were did, great people. Okay. okay, wonderful. And they covered a big chunk of the Bay Area in California. Mm-hmm. Huge contract, you know, a, a decade long. Um, obviously, founded by a guy with like a short pinky finger and named like Little Jimmy. Or no, something. but it was it. It wasn't. That's how they found. That's how all garbage companies were founded. Generally, right. yeah. this one had become national and. And international even, and was publicly traded. But okay. they had this contract they wanted to retain. They needed local consultants to help them do that. I was one of the local consultants. One of the things they needed to do was look at the local news every day in like 20 different communities. Mm, okay, Like little teeny blogs to like weekly newspapers to alt-weeklies. Like they wanted to know it was in there. And if anything was relevant, not just to garbage, but to like public affairs, what was happening on the ground. Okay. And I said, if I'm going to aggregate that on a day-to-day basis, which is like so painful, like mm-hmm. it's awful. Mm-hmm. I would like take that. And send it to them, like, in the format they wanted. And I would, like, write it up and put it on a blog. It was a news aggregation blog. It's like an internal journalistic role. Kind of. Yes. But then I would put a little snark, and I would do it anonymously to this political watchdog, like, website. Like, basically, if I, my whole thing was, if if people who are in politics or policy will read this every day, and those 300 people that work in it every day are reading it, then I have have a little power. Right? Like, and I know enough about Google you know, if people have, you know, Google on for their own name, like if I put their name in it, it's going to get they'll pinged. Alert and they'll feel special. And then you're, you're making them feel special. So you're special. Right. But they didn't know it was me. But, but the whole thing was like, if you could do the rigor of doing it every day oh. was really the lesson there. Like, interesting. If you could do something every day yeah. that people read, even if it was only three or 500 people, then there is, there is power in that. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely. it's really hard to do. Like it's, it, the, the reason why most people's entrepreneurial visions fail is because they don't have the rigor to do it all the time. Yeah, do whatever it is that they need to repetitively. Yes. And reportage particularly 
Yeah. Especially if it's on the same kind of stuff. Right. It was so, it was difficult. a grind and, and I did it for like six years. Like yeah. it, it was really, and it was That's every a long day. time. Oh, and I did it even when I moved here. I was still doing it there. So like, wow. And then I sold it for like, for the amount of hours I put in, I sold it for like, like maybe a cent an hour that I put in. Okay. Like I, it was less than 20 grand that I sold it for. It seemed like a huge amount of the time. Like, oh my God, I did something and sold it for 20 grand. You it's finally only, bought some shoes. Yeah. Basically like, yeah, paid the internet bill for the past six years. Like it was... I mean, I'm I, like, it was, I'm glad I did it. It was yeah. unbelievable experience, but between the heavily regulated industry stuff that I was working on and the daily rigor of doing it every day, like those two pieces were important. I didn't put them together yet. When I moved to, to Toronto in 2012, mm-hmm. I went to work at an agency. It was really good experience. I want, I needed to build a professional network because I didn't marketing, know anybody. Creative, what? Marketing, like social purpose. It was like a, like a marketing agency for social purpose causes. Okay, cool. We had, and and interestingly, we had I was working on two contracts with Public Health Agency of Canada. Mm. So like I was sort of seeing what was happening in Ottawa, understood kind of what was happening with cannabis, still liked cannabis a lot. Um, uh, one woman that I was working with at this agency and another who I'd met along the way, we convened and said like, what are we, this is 2016. What are we going to do in cannabis? Like we all like cannabis. We know that that's how we, we are a part of this tribe. We all come from slightly different backgrounds professionally. Is there something for us? Mm. I was like, oh, so I was like, oh, maybe there is. And so we started meeting with anybody we knew. One of them was a lawyer. We met with lawyers at all the big firms downtown that were doing work in cannabis. One was in video production and film and, and agency work. And she said, well, I think you could really do something here if we produced content. And then we said, well, what, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And in mid-2017, so this is the year before legalization, right? we said, oh, you know, we're meeting these lawyers and they're introducing us to technology people. They're introducing us to like growers or would be growers and extractors and people who want to build brands and all this. And it's very compelling. And the entrepreneurial vibe in cannabis was very similar to what Silicon Valley is, but like people just pushing their chips in without understanding what the industry is going to look like because yeah, it was exciting. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Crazy exciting. Right. And we said well, that, that maybe that's the thing. Like let's focus on these entrepreneurs who are doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And like, entrepreneurs who are like really like pushing chips in, like they have a piece of land they're going to build on it. And frankly, like lawyers at big stodgy firms who are putting their professional and personal careers on the line to do something sure. in this industry that people were sort of questioning. And that was interesting. So if we, we said, if we could reflect the industry really to itself and maybe to the outside world, we will have done something and tell those stories. Yeah. How are we going to do that? We had no idea. So we went to the Globe and Mail. We said, if we could help tell the story to Globe and Mail audience, like that's a good, you know, the industry's not getting not getting the vibes it wants from that sort of mm-hmm. that set in Canada. And so we went to the Globe Mail and said, sell us a con- sponsored content section. We will program against, we'll put together a who's who in Canadian cannabis. This is 2017. Like who are the accountants? Who are the lawyers? Who are the growers? Who are the people that are going to do interesting things? And we spent six months selling ads into this section. Mm. It opened every door in cannabis. That's digital time. or that was also in print? It was going to be a real print thing. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me get to the punchline. <laughs> uh, but we met like it really opened doors because a, it wasn't as busy as it is now. Like, and there weren't that many players, to be quite honest. You know, we had probably 25 advertisers that were ready to buy into this eight-page section. The Global Mail was jazzed because they had some distance from what was happening, and they could at least reap the benefit of this money that was coming in. And we set an, uh, set a date for an event. I think the date of the event was going to be November 28th. The piece was going to come out November 29th, 2017. Mm. Um, and we had an event set at Denton, so a law firm downtown Toronto. Yeah. We had a panel set up. We were like, okay, we're going to invite anybody we know in the sector. We this is going to be great. And then the thing will drop the next day. Like three days before the event, the Global Mail calls back and said, actually, we're not doing it now. Here's your money back. Because of legal concerns. Which they had already signed off on. But yes, because of legal concerns. Which was fun. Like, it, 
in hindsight, it's a blessing. We got right. to call back our 25 advertisers, say, we're being treated just as crappy as you. We are martyrs just like you. Right. Leave us your money and we will give you value over the next year as we really launch Business of Cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we went and Become a media company of your own. Yes. Direct to consumer. Direct to business. Like B2B. Pre-rolled. <laughs> there you go. So B2B, and like, and we did this and then we had this event and there, and I was standing with my two business partners at the time and we're looking at these 300 people, most of whom we did not know. Right. But we also realized they didn't know each other. Yeah. Like how could these people not know each other? They are the people we know in the sector. If they don't know each they're other, they're looking suspiciously at each other. Perhaps. They don't know each other. Yeah. Like one, like one, competing, maybe. one grower came up to us and said, Hey, that's, I'll tell you, it was, that's John Prentice from Ample Organics, who at the time was, you know, you're not going to know, but it was like this, this uh, software that growers needed to track every seed to sale. Oh, tracking. I remember that yeah. name. Now I do. Yeah, yeah that they, was like a big. It was a big deal. They had like 200 employees here at the time. Yeah. They've since been sold. But we we're like, well, we know John really well, but we also know you grower really well. How do you not know each other? Like this seems wild, and we made connections. And so it was a little bit like we felt we were late to the game, but really the industry was needed some sort of organizing principle around it, or a Definitely. media company, or like talk about it all the time. And so we this was November, late November 2017, and we had like maybe a four-week or five-week game plan of what we were going to do. One, we were going to do this thing in the Globe Mail. That went away. We were going to do this event. And then we pushed out digitally this this uh, thing that we had produced and made people give us their email address to download it. And like all of a sudden, we have like 2,000 people that we're talking to on a regular basis. We're putting in a, a weekly newsletter, which is another part of the plan. We conducted a nationwide poll with Nanos Research about what people were thinking about cannabis and legalization. We... Uh, did some research with the Human Resources Professionals Association about what workplaces were ready for. This was like our first six weeks. Mm-hmm. And like we started getting media attention for ourselves. I was on BNN, Bloomberg. Like I was like, oh, this is like happening. Like we're really talking to the industry. That seems cool. We're actually producing our own news that is getting picked up by others. That's mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. And we had, this is, we had a game plan. Um, there was a major conference in uh, Vancouver that was not ours in early 2018. We said, if we could release our data that week, and then while people are sitting in the B2B conference, like pinging them with their data points, like with graphics, mm-hmm. not that people are bored at conferences, but people are on their phone at conferences. Yeah, and they're so, much more excited when they see graphics. Right. So like, so there's, so, <laughs> well, what, so, so what happened was, no, so what happened was, yeah. there, like I was actually on the show, but the week we released this poll from Nanos Research, we got on Bloomberg that week too. So like. As people are sitting at this conference on a Thursday, yeah. we're posting all of our stuff from the previous week. And plus, just eating thing. it up. I mean, I my I think they were eating it up. Yeah. So when I finally got to the conference on like Friday, people were like, "Oh, we just saw you on Bloomberg," which I know seems like a it's one small three set three no, minute but segment in, in this like emergent industry. Any coverage was like a pathway to success, yeah. perhaps for some of these people. Yeah, and so we. So like in, a, in this six weeks period, we we're like, oh, we're like, like our strategy is working. Like we are attracting an audience. People are reading our stuff. We're getting, we're releasing our own news, making news. And then the six weeks was kind of up. We're like, holy shit. Yeah. But I, I sat um, at a different co-working space, not okay. yours. Okay. A really crappier one <laughs> and was talking to my business partner who had since moved to California and we're sitting on Zoom actually. Uh-huh. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting if like the conversations we have all the time when we're sitting in people's conference rooms, we actually just videotaped it through Zoom. Yeah. I did like a, what what video app lets you record? record? Yeah. Zoom was the only one at the time. Yeah, It's still kind of the only one. Like, you can't record. It's difficult to figure it out. That's yes. a whole different discussion so, for so me. I can geek out on that topic. It's it. Uh, we did it poorly for a long time, but yeah. I, I, I was of the belief, because I'm super shallow, that, like, if you fed people's social media feeds, they will respond. 
Uh-huh. And if we get the right people and leverage their networks, we will build our network. Yeah. So who are the people we know with the biggest following? Yeah. Let's get them on a Zoom because they'll give us five minutes at their own desk. Like how hard is of that? Of course, yeah. And we'll record it and put it through people's thing and then it'll feed our website as well, feed our newsletter. Right. And that's that was sort of in February 2018 after our six weeks of runtime went out. Yeah. We had these people's money. We needed to give them value. This is a way to give them value. Then we said, okay, we also need to have events because we owe people real dollars. Mm-hmm. The only way to really provide value in real dollars is to have an event. Everybody's a medical cannabis at the time because legalization had happened. We launched something called Medical Cannabis Week. We invented it. But all of a sudden, we're driving 400 people at the Masonic Temple, right? That iconic building on uh, Young. Yeah, explain it for the non-Torontonians. Oh, so uh, what's well, Masonic? Because otherwise, you just sound like you're taking your shoes off. I know, no, no. So the Masonic <laughs> Temple is like, uh, uh, Masonic Temple is a is an iconic uh, venue in Toronto where like huge people have played and it's a beautiful building it's a beautiful stage but historically it was a Masonic yeah temple. yeah it totally was a Masonic temple and then it became a concert hall yeah. and like all and the then big the CTV took it over yeah. Canadian television yeah. or whatever From, yeah. yeah and then it like we had an event there and like 400 people showed up wow. like, holy shit wow we're five You're months like, this into is our real. venture this is fun we're five months into our venture and like people are sponsoring our stuff they're coming to our stuff they're super keen to work with us yeah then they're buying tickets we're the punters buying the tickets yeah they okay. were so there was buy-in. People were like really. Yeah. I think it sounds interesting because it was it's two things, right? It's like the the media publication side, and then there's also this kind of networking thing, and you were the glue in the Toronto ecosystem around cannabis. And even time. broader, like then we started attracting people who weren't even from Toronto, but we're like, oh, will you speak? They're like, yeah. We're like, oh, you're not in Toronto. And they said, well, that's fine. I'll just get to Toronto. I was like, oh. That's... You'll fly here to meet with me? <laughs> Basically, that's what. And many of them were saying, we'll just come to your studio. I was like, studio? Like, if you've seen our stuff, we're literally on Zoom in right. my basement. Yeah. Like, there is no studio. There is just. You're like, okay, you can sleep on my couch, man. Yeah. That's basically what it was. And, uh, wow. So yeah. that was the beginning. That was the foundation. That was like pre legalization. Yeah, pre legalization, pre everything. Just, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're going to do this thing. And, and it was funny. I did a conversation, uh, podcast, not that long ago, with like an entrepreneur thing. And like, Someone was saying, well, what, what was the, what was the drive? I was like, we, I didn't have, there was no option of fucking up. Like, yeah, this is what you were doing. This is what I was doing. And we like, I'd push my chips in. Like I'd left my job to do this. Right. Like I have kids, we have a mortgage. I have a wife. Like, so what did your family think about this? I had a very long conversation with my dad about it. Okay. I was like, here's what we're going to, this is 2017. I said, here's what I'm going to do. Like he said, sounds like there's money in that. Go do it. Yeah. yeah. Your wife? She was, uh. Okay with it. I mean, she likes the idea. Mm-hmm. But um, she started the stopwatch. And she said, Jay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't you've say got that. six months to bring home mortgage money. Yeah, it wasn't, I wasn't that specific. But, it, you know, it's hard. Like, being an entrepreneur is really hard. It is hard. And course. to leave a steady gig to go do it is even harder. Um, to do it, I was, you know, I'm in my 40s. Like, it's yeah. not, like I'm not fuck, I'm fucking around. Like, I have yeah, here, kids I go up, to school. Like, I have, I have kids I go to private, private school. Like 40s. Hurrah. Almost 40, 50s. 41. I'm, I'm on the low end of that. Actually, one, 41 me, a couple of weeks ago. Give me one second. I'm sorry. Speaking of kids, like, this is the thing. Yeah. Now I have to text my daughter because she's, um, I'm, so, I'm sorry to just cast them. Text your daughter all you want. <laughs> I'm not, I'm fine. I'm going to Dollarama. Should I meet you at her office? My daughter loves Dollarama. Showed his mind. This is funny. Dollarama for her is a holiday. So she says, I don't want to go to school today, Papa. I and to I, I want to go to Dollarama. At least she's frugal. That's good. I'm like, are they competing interests? Dollarama and education. 
Yeah. Uh, is she in like the school aisle? <laughs> like, does she want arts and crafts? No, she just loves looking at all that cheap, cheap, cheap stuff. You know, it's good C- containers and stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, she's really obsessed with her hair right now. So it's like braids and hair ties, mm. and she's three and a half. You know, she's not into the chocolate bars or any crazy stuff. She loves spooky things. Halloween, we took her to the Castle Loma haunted house, and oh, she just and went. She loves looks creepy it. even just driving by it. Three the and smoke. a half things are jumping out at you, and she's like laughing, and she's like, "Again, again." Well, it, I took my seven-year-old to the Halloween store, like to buy a costume, and Ooh. they have like this is on St. Clair near the brick, uh, not near, near um, stockyards. Yeah. And they have like a moving thing in it, and he just wanted to like get the costume guy. He was freaked out by it. Oh man! So like they go through phases. Like yeah. three and a half, she might not be scared. Four and a half, she might be. Hopefully, she'll never be scared. She might be. And then she'll be an entrepreneur, <laughs> which brings us back. Well, it does. Sorry, I didn't mean to digress. It's no, just, that's But fine. this is the thing. Like, you know, I see, um, you know, those people that write these threads on Twitter. God bless them. Like, you know, have been hyper successful entrepreneurs everywhere mm. from like Shopify to like small time stuff. But like, you know, it's easy to do that when you actually have. You mean this, like, uh, like the kind of like. Uh, Post exit entrepreneurial wisdom from yeah. Joe Schmo, the twenty five year old. Yeah, and, and like, that's it's not an age thing, but like, you know, if you got a hyper valuation on a company that was not making any money, good for you. Yeah, good for you. Good but for you. Also, but like, it doesn't mean you know how to a thread about how to build a business. Like you, you basically didn't. Yeah, but like, that whole hype machine uh, around pyramid scheme, you know, <laughs> enterprise. Something I'm very much at odds with uh, because I feel like it robs the value from a lot of people's mindsets when they're starting out about yeah. the value of bootstrap And the exit, yeah. You know, yeah, why build something to exit it, you know? Right. The amount of entrepreneurs who I've interviewed um, and talked to who come to me, right? And pre-pandemic, uh, this was a popular thing. Once a week, I would have someone who had $200 million in their bank account coming to start well saying, I want to be a mentor. And I'm like, okay, well, what? who do you want to mentor? Firstly, I don't like that word. Secondly, right. you're going to add value to someone's life. How will you do it? Why are your words valuable to those people? They didn't have answers. They were just being shouted at, at home to get off the couch. <laughs> they had so much money, they maybe bought a more comfortable couch or a house to put that couch in. But then they were like, what the hell do I do with my days? Right. And... You know, I think part of that is, part of it is maybe, okay, occasionally you might be robbed of your purpose uh, when your purpose was your whole life was your business and then you sold it because you were afraid of what the next step was and the usual thing. Um, But a lot of it I'm hearing more of is this idea that people uh, build to sell, but don't build to be. Right. And, and, and yes, and you as well, because I see what you do here, Mm -hmm. like, I had to figure most of this shit out by myself. Yeah. Like the, the option at some point is like, you could either learn how to build a website or have, or pay someone to build it. Right. Like to pay someone to build it means you're not getting paid as much. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. I could pay someone to edit videos or I could learn Final Cut Pro myself. Yeah. Right. I could like, you know, um, well, any of it, like, you know, st- stream video, edit video, record video, streamline the process about like, you know, scheduling people, like, you know, you figure out how to like workflow stuff and the rigor of doing it every day. And this goes back to this silly blog I had, yeah. which is like, you have to do it. And the rigor of doing it means that like when you're, and now we are, we've not outgrown a lot of it, but like t- tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> for the first time, I'm ashamed to see this because people like think we are some big enterprise. Yeah, of course. Tomorrow, someone else is going to be putting the newsletter content, our daily newsletter into MailChimp themselves. Wow. Without me. 
you got to that point? Well, we we exited. Right. <laughs> Sorry about exits. We got bought in July. July um, of this year. Yeah, July of this year. Okay. Um, By who? Uh, this company, Prohibition Partners, based in the UK, does a lot of events, does insight, does content. Um, so doing the same sort of thing that you were doing. Yeah. They entered the Canadian market through you. Through me, but more importantly, the U.S. market. Okay. That's, that's the and and we knew. I don't think we knew it back in 2017. Yeah. But to grow an exponential level, it's it's Canada's lovely. We love it. But it's like the incu- it was the incubator for uh, for kind of the industry evolving in the U.S. Right? Yeah, and in the U.S., it's like there's just many countries basically. Like because like, like even here, I mean, at the time when you remember, uh, we had through the doors canopy growth. Yeah, Kronos we had Kronos. Kronos grew their finance team. Finance procurement it was like eight people combined. They grew to 120 with us. All upstairs, yeah. Um, and it was again both of those are examples where foreign investment came from. Related industries, right? Beer, mm-hmm. I think. Beer and tobacco. Yeah, and beer and tobacco. Yeah. And Beverages down, and down tobacco. south. Yeah, yeah. And now they're and was, going back that way. Right? They're they're taking that money from other industries and going back to the U.S. and buying properties, including uh, Cron- uh, Canopy. Just has an option to buy Wana Gummies, which is a huge gummy manufacturer uh, brand here mm-hmm. and in the states, and that's like a it's a valuable brand. But like that didn't exist in 2017. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, so. Yeah, so I learned to do it all yourself, and then and then I'm hesitant sometimes to give it up because you do it yourself, right? Yeah. Like, why would I pay someone to do it if I do it myself? But then you realize, like, you look at the the time horizon. Like, I'm better off selling and building partnerships and someone else doing the implementation of like social well, media and, and newsletter. Yeah, but it gets to a point where you're like, you just have to do that. And I'm glad you because the team is amazing, and the, the, most of them are in the UK. Like, I'm happy to, and the time change like. The time difference works in our yeah. favor this way. Like, I'm going to get to them at night, like when I usually do it, but I'm not going to empty it into MailChimp, and they're going to do it in their morning and get it out. To, like, it just, you realize that bigger companies can do a lot more stuff. Totally. And it's tough when you're an entrepreneur because I think replacing yourself feels not only expensive, but um, for, for the immediate cost of hiring that person, but also the cost of having to uh, take time to train them, yeah. uh, invest in their uh, talent development, you know, and then there's also that question of like, will it be done as well as right. I can do it? And also that ever lingering question of what am I truly great at? Because I'm so good at so many things that, you know, you're really feeding like this is the ego talk I have with myself all the time. This is the entrepreneurial thing. And you have to give yourself that ego talk to be able to wake up every morning and, and say, you know what? I'm actually fucking really excited about today. Not that like you're depressed and you're working yourself up in bed before you put your feet down on the ground, but more like I get to do anything today. Mm-hmm. I'm so special. It's Christmas, and but, I bought the presents. But and this is the thing, and this is this is I I am an egomaniac, and this feeds that. But the thing that <laughs> the, my unique thing that I can do, yeah, as an entrepreneur, but also as as a person mm-hmm. in the cannabis, is I understand this. This is true whether I was working for the garbage company or anything else. Like. I'm interested in that industry. Yeah. Like I'm interested in the garbage industry and what it was all about. That's why we're, that, that's why I was a good consultant for them. Right. Because I cared like the, from the roots to the trucks, to the, how garbage gets separated into recycling and where does the money come in? Because recycling, the company was making money, which was offsetting the collections of the garbage. Like, but they also own the dump. Like yeah, yeah, all yeah. that was really interesting from a business, from a, like a, not even a, case study but mm-hmm. like i'm interested in the nuts and bolts well it's just like the socioeconomic study of a uh, organism you know yeah uh, let's talk okay given that mm-hmm. give me 
the if I could cue music right now, it'd be like, give me the 360 on the business of cannabis. Like my business or the industry of cannabis? The industry. Yeah. So, uh, in cannabis industry breaks down into these types yeah. of characters. Yeah. Oh, characters. Well, characters. Sorry, not the, <laughs> no, but here's, here's the, here are the different ends of the supply chain. Let's go. And this is interesting because it used to be like everybody was interested in all of it. Like, right. give it to me. Then all. they went bankrupt. Well, that, but also like you can't do all that. Like there is an agricultural component of growing cannabis. That mm-hmm. is a very unique skill. Very difficult to do. Some people are doing it at scale so they can extract cannabis and they do that either outside or in a greenhouse or in in a room mm-hmm. there is like craft cultivation which is generally happening in closed is that like good buds good buds yeah but they do some outside they do some inside but they're amazing yeah they used to be here too yeah um so craft but they're on the west coast and so they have their own vibe so you've like, got growers and you've got differentiation amongst growers yes okay from like craft small micro mm-hmm. even like 2500 square feet to a million square feet of greenhouse like and then outdoor you know acres and acres so like differentiated there are people who process and manufacture that into finished products yep like some dry flour which of course then like one of the biggest categories is pre-rolls mm-hmm. like turning that flour either whether it's quality or otherwise but lesser quality into pre-rolls and they just fly off the shelves pre-rolls by the way are joints yes yes okay joints they yeah. ro- they, they're the joint roller guys yeah and like the whole industry around pre-rolls is its own thing yeah um uh, then there are people who make finished products edibles beverages the whole bit and that's you know huge variation on all those things from huge beverage plants to you know small gummy manufacturers in a small room that are taking extract, putting it in um, gummies. Yeah. Um, all of that in Canada goes through basically wholesale the provinces. Mm-hmm. Like in Ontario, it's the Ontario Cannabis Store. Right. You bas- they basically... Provincially the- controlled. So you're saying kind of like uh, distribution is controlled by the province. Mo- in every, almost every the government. Let's yes. call it the government. Yeah, the government. Then it gets to the wholesaler. And then in Ontario, we have this, you know, more than a thousand private stores wow so now we're talking bricks and mortar retailers yes because these digital distribution on demand uber copycat companies are illegal they were illegal and those were like illegal let's just say that again they legacy. were illegal they were yeah. there is now legal delivery from these private retailers like, okay so but if you're a superette you, you can deliver okay yeah and they do, and they will. If we had was that them, a post-pandemic situation? It was early pandemic, and now post-pandemic. Yeah. It was because like people can't come to the store, so we have to yes. give it to them. The challenge, though, yeah, is that that same wholesaler, the Ontario Cannabis Store, in this case, also sells online. So they're competing with the retailer. You got for it. the same product. Yep. Is uh, is it like the LCBO and booze? Because we had a couple episodes ago, we had Eric and John from Ascari tell me about their whole like wine shop yeah. idea and how they're fighting the LCBO or like the whole industry is because they're buying a marked up product from the wholesale. For, yeah. And the wholesale are selling it too. So the same sort of thing. Worse, but yes. Okay. <laughs> I think worse. Uh, and the Ontario cannabis store is barely selling any weed to consumers. Like they have a whole wholesale operation where they're supporting retailers, of course, because that's part of the business. And they have this e-com component, yeah. which is only selling 8% of all the cannabis in Ontario. Oh. So they started off with 100% market share right. when legalization happened because there was no stores, down to 8%. So this is a sector which is unique in having retail actually be successful, especially in the last couple of years, which is interesting. Successful in that they are selling most of the weed. But it's, not, it's not really in the sense the market's business. become differentiated like crazy and there's a shop every two steps yes. on Queen in Street. In Ontario, yeah. and on, right near here, on yeah. Queen Street West especially. 
but I just did a conversation about Windsor has 40 stores. Okay. 230,000 people, 40 stores, about one for every six or 7,000 people. That's kind of a lot. Is it a good business at retail? What's the margin? Uh, Typically, what would be the margin be? It's not great. Right yeah. now, it's not great. Like because, a, because all these stores are buying the same product from the Ontario Cannabis Store. So I, as a store, I can't say Jay's Cannabis Store is going to only have craft cannabis from 100 kilometers of where I am right now. Mm-hmm. You just can't do that because everybody has access to the same list from the Ontario Cannabis Store. Is there, um, are there end-to-end companies still? There will, there, there are with regulation sort of making, you know, challenging because if I'm, does it mean that they're multi-brand, sort of like Canopy Growth, Yeah, Tokyo Canopy, Smoke. a whole bunch have a bunch of different brands, yeah. Uh, and then have retail as well in some form or fashion. But if I'm Jay's Cannabis Store and I want to white label Jay's Cannabis product, mm-hmm. I have to put it through the Ontario Cannabis Store, basically, and everybody has access to it. Oh. So I can't say, I'm gonna, this is mine, like you could with wine, actually. My sister-in-law, like, she can get specific wine from Italy that she would have access to when it comes in, as opposed to you and me and everybody else having mm-hmm. the same access to... It still to, has to go through the LCBO's warehouse. Yes, but I it's only mine. Right. Like, it's, it's mine going... It's retailed. In. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so that doesn't happen yet, um, which sucks. Uh, yeah, it's it's a de- very difficult business and not for the faint of heart, and regulations change all the time. And in Vancouver, so downtown Vancouver, every store has a 300-meter radius around it where there can't be another store. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, these mini monopolies in the 300-meter radius. Here, like turfs, you can't get 300 meters in downtown Toronto without hitting four or five stores. Yeah. So, uh, what about the black market? It's thriving. <laughs> I hear this from from uh, I've heard this from a couple of people yeah. just anecdotally. Yeah. People are telling me I get better weed from my and the supply is more regular. I can always get the thing that I like. Now it might be five different things, but it's called the same thing, so they That's feel like true. M35. You know, that yeah. was back in university days. <laughs> now you're they had all these scary, yourself. scary names. I don't know if those are real. That was the Raver Kid stuff, which was the Hell's Angels stuff. It was different than the like because uh, you went to school in Montreal. Yeah, very different than the like uh, Lionel Gru Metro stuff or the Barry Ucam stuff. You so know? like, uh, so there is a thriving legacy market. Yeah. Um, every day it gets more competitive with the legal market. I mean, meaning the legal market's more competitive with the legacy market. And, you know, some people say it's like 50-50 now. Mm-hmm. But what I think is really happening is there's like 20% of the consumers that consume 80% of the cannabis. That's, you know, the 80-20 rule. Every, every industry is like that. Smoky Joes. And so some people have transitioned completely into the legal market. I think there's many more people who are like regular consumers that buy some from the legal yeah. market and some from the unregulated market. And they're like, and how, what does that mix look like? Now, what you will not get on the unregulated the legacy market is lab tested third-party validated like you don't know what's in it and you just don't and there's been a bunch of provinces and other research institutions that have said we've tested legal and and not Mm -hmm. and like this one has pesticides this one has things that microbes like all the things you wouldn't want to ingest especially if they're smoking yeah or edibles like the the doses off like you know like you buy a hundred milligram on the black market edible unlikely it's going to be a hundred milligrams on the nose and even less likely it's going to be you know the same consistency throughout all 10 of those little nubs. Um, I remember back in the day, there was a, there was a guy I knew sure. and he went, <laughs> Does he worked from Starwell. He used to, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> he used to, <laughs> he used to go to, uh, he used to go to this one Depener. This Depener would not only sell beer post uh, 11 o'clock. I think that was the cutoff for, for the Depeners, but they would also, this one particularly Tamil operated Depener in mile end would, would sell weed. And, uh, and then, you know, this guy, I know got uh, a bag of oregano once literally legitimately, it was oregano went back to tell them, Hey guys, um, you know, this isn't cool. Right. 
because there might be some thugs out there that buy the oregano and come at you. Kick your ass. A baseball bat was shown, and uh, and this guy I know was threatened and had to run out of the store, and he was just trying to give him a helpful tip, you know? So that doesn't happen when you walk into Super Ed. No. And you should walk into Super Ed. And, it's and a the cool store. store. I like going in it's there amazing. just to look at stuff. It's I'm like, as a retail experience, it is uh, it is delightful. And and nicer nicer people you will not meet. And hyper entrepreneurial and great operators, and just uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I like I like yeah. I love Supred and the team. There are lots of really interesting operators that are doing amazing work. Let's talk about the media landscape sure. and how it's changed in the last few years. Mm-hmm. I, when I have gone into said Supred stores, uh, have seen publications, and the publications when I look them up on the masthead seem to be advertorial publications owned by producers or distributors. There's some of that. Yeah, for sure. Or not uh, distributors, because that's the province. No, but, you know, uh, whoever no, but involved ju- just in the wait, program. they'll get into it too. Um, yes. And it's difficult because the only place you could actually deliver those things is in an age-gated environment that's like a cannabis store or a strip mm-hmm. club, right? Like, it's a challenging environment which should operate. There is a publication that is not that. There's one called Kind Magazine that does this. It focuses uniquely on Canada and the Canadian brands and what's happening. It, it's just really, almost all of it is just early days. So how does Business of Cannabis fit in? Is it an industry insider publication? I, I think so. Like, we really pride ourselves on being having a beat on what is happening in the industry and being B2B. Like, a lot of our partners are service providers to the sector, insurance, banking, law. And, like, we want those people that are our partners to help educate the industry. Mm-hmm. And in return, we want the industry to go to our partners and other people, too, to get the expert advice. So, like, whether it's a technology company or a law firm or a bank or, like, all of our partners are doing unbelievable work. They're not the only ones doing unbelievable work, but we're helping sort of get them to share their expertise with our audience first and foremost because our audience wants and needs that. And we are hopeful that they see the benefit in return, which is a lot like other B2B in boring industries. Like I'm not trying to be mean, but like in boring industries, this happens all the time. And if we're able to like serve our audience and serve our partners and be the conduit between the two, which is how we, our very early days of COVID, we're like, well, we have this audience and we have these partners how are we going to connect them absent real world events? It was through content, events, digital content, podcasts, you know, written stuff. Okay. So as uh, you know, a media company embracing digital, of course, since day one, right? This whole idea of the video conference mm-hmm. recording. Um, what is on the horizon, if anything, in terms of changing formats, um, dealing with social media, um, you know, limited attention spans, blah, blah, blah. Are you going the route of kind of um, making your content more digestible um, and focusing on that accessibility question? Or are you going deeper for the industry if you're B2B with in-depth market research, analysis, uh, custom reporting, that kind of stuff? I would say both. Okay. Not not that we're going to spread ourselves thin. On the business of cannabis side, we're really in the digestible business. Like, I think by the end of the first quarter next year, we will be doing basically a web show every day. Right, the rigor again, back to the stupid podcast, not the, the stupid news that I did way back when, but like the rigor of doing that every day, yeah, where we like because the industry is so broad now, yeah, but even there's a either, lot of news to report, let's say, and it it's that very way. deep on either end. So, right. like, how do you distill it and provide the industry sort of a song sheet for the day? And that's where I think we could provide real value. Also, we do a lot of content at our events and interviews and all that, like, that will be part of this thing too. So, we will be on the rigor daily snapshot type of thing across all of our platforms, newsletter, social, otherwise, video, web, web, uh, uh, web, web, 
video. Um, but our partner, our, our owner now, Prohibition Partners, does really extensive market research both here and, and in, um, in Europe especially. You know, what does it look like for pharma? What does it look like on um, different markets? Like, what does it look like for disrupting the beverage industry for the UK, for Germany? Like, you know, for medical cannabis, like they, they really do these deep dives, 30, 40 page reports, which is great. And people absolutely need and want that. Mm-hmm. And our role will be to support that and talk about that and highlight that because that's what the industry needs and it's supporting sort of the, the mothership. So uh, that's our whole, that's nice. our jam. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk real quick on the end note about your kind of look into the crystal ball on the event side and on in real life and that story. What are you hopeful for for 2022 and what are you planning to, you know, uh, do based on that hope? Yeah. So we just did our first event in New York at the end of September. Our growth plan is going to be extensively in the States. We're always going to do work in Canada, but our work in the States is going to be where the growth is going to come. New York is a great market. A, it's adjacent to where we are right now, but also the industry is like right on the cusp. Like they're going to legalize next year. So there's like this whole nascent industry just like raring to go. Yeah. We did an event at the Rainbow Room, iconic venue in New York, and like the industry showed up. We had like 350 people and it was great. We're going to go back there quarterly, do a networking event, much like we did here in 2017, 2018, because this like idea that there's like an organizing principle, organizing media company sort of talking about it all the time. We want to be there. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to other geographies in the States as well. And partly about like emerging markets and what does that mean? But also about these thematic big themes in the industry. Like right now, I think the most interesting part is like everything around retail. So dispensaries and retail tech design data insights. That's really interesting. And it's blowing up. Right. We went from zero stores in 2018 in mm-hmm. Ontario to over a thousand. Mm-hmm. Multiply that times two and that's where we are in the country. Multiply that times another, you know, one and a half. And that's what's going to be in New York in three years. Like, yeah. you know, the scale is completely different. The scale is different. Which means the adoption of all these different ways of doing things is going to be crazy. Yeah. And whereas this event we had in 2017, our very first event was like a really broad conversation. Like, where's the industry today and tomorrow? It's going to be more of like, this is an industry. What does it look like at retail? Right. We think there's something around. What does it look like at uh, the ag tech part? What does it look like processing, manufacturing, new research and development? Like, there's a lot to do, like a real industry mm-hmm. that we're really keen to explore that probably didn't exist. Like, you couldn't have like a show just about retail tech and design and data two years ago because it was like it was too early. But now it's like a whole industry of them itself. It's great to hear that you're expanding your efforts more um, widely and uh, with a depth thanks to this new relationship yeah. uh, and into the U.S. Um, and that you've been uh, able to jump down to New York and are living a uh, post-pandemic reality. I was also in Las Vegas. Yeah, the There po- you go. I prefer the pandemic reality here than there, but yeah. Yeah, it's a little scary down there. I, I really don't think we're in danger there, but you, it feels very, very different. Yeah. The energy is weird. I mean, if you're vaccinated, you're vaccinated. You have to be hopeful a little bit, right? Yeah, but you still have to be on a flight. And the flights yeah. to and from Canada are great because everybody's tested and most yeah. people are vaccinated. But like I was on a flight from Las Vegas to Chicago, which was packed. I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm glad I'm negative now, but I better keep testing myself when I get to Toronto. <laughs> and I have. And like, I'm fine, obviously. But um, yeah. All right. Well, it was a pleasure Thank having you, you in studio. Uh, what I want to do is keep tabs through next year on kind of how this experience is unveiling. Uh, itself to you and how this new positioning for business of cannabis is um, giving you insight into the industry that is far larger very soon than what you've been dealing with in the last couple of years here in Canada. 
and I'm keen to follow any stories that you're reporting on. Um, so I'd like to have you back to, to tell me a little bit about uh, other Canadian entrepreneurs in this space that are involved in the States and their growth stories. Totally. Love okay. to do it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you.